If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's hard to remember now, but back before anyone knew what a coronavirus was, we had plans for what to do if one emerged. It wasn't a complete plan. It wasn't even one single plan. More like a lot of little plans, state by state, hospital by hospital. But doctors were imagining a moment like this one. So a number of years ago, well over a decade ago, there was the H1N1 flu pandemic, if you remember that. Sherry Fink reports for The New York Times. It was a flu strain that people were afraid was going to be the next big and bad pandemic. Sherry says this H1N1 flu, it's where a lot of pandemic plans got started, mostly because physicians realized that they'd dodged a bullet. They realized that if there were ever a really bad outbreak, particularly of a virus that affects the respiratory system, that even though the U.S. you know has an enviable healthcare system, has a lot of resources, is very advanced, that we could run out. And once they started making these plans, doctors realized there were an awful lot of things they could run out of. They even started using a little mnemonic for thinking about all the resources that could be drained. It went like this. Staff, stuff, and space. These are the three components. And that there's a typical standard by which we get care. And then in a crisis like this, where there are so many more people needing that, those resources, the staff stuff in the space, that the standard of care would not necessarily meet what we're used to. And so there was this recognition, wow, we better plan for this. What do we do? And the answer to that question was these plans. I imagine them sitting around in a dusty three-ring binder. But Cherry says... They're probably just a PDF file on some government computer. Whatever the plans look like, over the last few weeks, you've been hearing a lot about them. Ten Idaho hospitals are now operating under crisis standards of care. What does that mean? Does this mean doctors there possibly have to choose between helping an unvaccinated patient who's severely ill from COVID and someone else who may be having a heart attack? What that means in English is that hospital care is now being rationed. The idea that one of these plans could mean you turn up at the hospital and lose out on treatment, it's frightening. So I asked Sherry about that fear, whether rationing signaled a new stage of the pandemic. And she surprised me. She said, no, because plan or not, surge after surge in COVID infections, it's already been making everyone worse off. I've had so many doctors say to me, I know I could be saving more of these patients' lives if I could practice in a way that I'm used to. 
That is a common refrain during COVID surges. And maybe what's different about this moment is that they're putting a name to it, that some of these states have come forward and some hospitals and said openly to the public, we are triggering these PDF documents that you were imagining, these dusty you know, papers on a shelf. But we are actually letting you, the public, know that we're in this situation, that our providers are not able to treat you the way they normally would. And I think it's been happening a lot, but what may be unique is that now they're having press conferences. Now they're they're being open about it. Today on the show, a closer look at what rationing care really means. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Now that a couple states are finally saying out loud, we're in a crisis, Sherry has been curious to see how that's changed things for doctors and patients. She says a lot of hospitals are in the first stage of their pandemic playbook, and that means they aren't officially rationing yet. They're telling me that they're in this contingency mode where they're just stretching, 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 where it's incredibly difficult for the providers, where the patients aren't able to get the kind of care that they would like to provide. Another step in freeing up capacity, as many of us know, is that a lot of regular types of care are being canceled, surgeries, because often surgeries require you to stay in an ICU for a while and that can be predicted. So if you can hold off on a surgery, sometimes even a cancer surgery, they're doing that now. They're canceling, it's been called elective procedures, but if you're the one waiting to have your tumor out, that doesn't seem very elective and the doctors feel that way as well. Yeah, and it seems to be trickling down to people in emergency situations too, like the director of the Iowa Department of Health talked about his own mother going to a hospital because she'd had a stroke. Just a few hours after crisis standards of care was activated statewide. And in normal times, she would be kept for observation, but... Because of crisis standards of care, after she was stable, she was discharged later the same day from the ER. My family and I took over monitoring her at home. You know, it it doesn't feel great when you hear stories like that. You realize really everyone's being impacted. Exactly. Right. I think this was one of the revelations that some of the providers I was speaking with had. It hasn't felt like, uh, you know, all these people arrive and you choose between them. It's this horrific situation where a lot, a lot, a lot of patients are not getting regular care. You're being denied the type of care that would be most recommended. That's what we call a standard of care, what would typically be given to you. And so there's there can be more risk with that, more chance that you won't survive. And we've seen that during surges, even survival from COVID has been lower uh, in stressed hospitals. So the doctors felt like they would be standing over a couple of patients 
where both need a ventilator, but there's only one and making a decision. But then they realized that because the crisis standards of care kick in a little bit before that, they're actually making more wide-ranging decisions that impact more people, but people they didn't think they would be necessarily denying care to. This is true. And sometimes it does come down to choosing who gets a dialysis machine or an ECMO machine. That is something that's been rationed for sure. So ECMO is like when your lungs aren't working and you need a machine that does the work of the lungs, kind of like dialysis does the work of the kidneys. And sometimes you'd use that in surgery, for instance, but this is for COVID patients now. Exactly. It can be important for both. And there's not many hospitals that provide it. The number of hospitals that provide it can only provide it to a few patients. Typically, it takes a lot of, you know, again, the staff stuff in space. It's a lot of stuff, a lot of staff care for those patients. And even because it's a lot of stuff, you need a lot of space for it. So there are definitely cases where there have been choices about which patients get a a particular resource. For example, dialysis, sometimes everybody's gotten a shortened course of dialysis rather than giving a full course to one person and nothing to another person. It's a lot more gray areas, I guess, than that stark decision between patients. And then there's just a lot of stretching and not perfect ideal care being given to a lot of people. I'm really grateful for that staff stuff space, like three word (laughs) (laughs) phrase, because I feel like it really does sum up the problem hospitals are facing here, because we're so often framing this in terms of COVID surges and like COVID patients are flooding the hospitals. And that's not untrue, but it's there are other things that are happening, which is there are shortages in things. There are shortages in medicine and there are shortages in staff because the staff is getting burned out after a long time, too. And I feel like that's impacting when we flip on these sort of crisis standards of care. That is a huge, huge part of it. And if there's anything I can say to anybody or everybody, I want to shout it from the rooftops, the extraordinary sacrifice of providers and the stress and their dedication. There are now many stories about just how difficult this is, especially now that in some areas, including in Idaho, I'm hearing this a lot, there's an active antagonism toward the medical community, toward the hospital providers. Even people had one doctor say yesterday to me that our hospital is full of patients dying of COVID who don't believe that this pandemic exists. And there's so many layers of this. There's issues around payment and nurses being offered lots of money to travel to places where there's a need for them. But then you know, what does that feel like if you're working in that place as a nurse and you have a much lower salary? You know, so many people, like you said, burning out. And I just can't stress enough how much these people care. And it's so, so hard for them to watch so many people die. There's one other level that we haven't talked about, and that is that some of these crisis standards of care plans envision a situation where somebody has a resource like a ventilator or critical care bed, and doctors, for example, expect that they won't make it or that they have maybe 
less of a chance to make it than other patients and that the resource is actually reassigned to somebody else. Well, and you've chronicled doctors who get up to that point, like with the ECMO, for instance. I know you've written about, you know, a patient who was on an ECMO for a month and it wasn't looking great and the doctors had to place a phone call. That's right. That's right. They were gently trying to tell the family that the ECMO wasn't expected to help their loved one survive, that there was almost no chance at this point that their loved one would ever recover. And the doctor, I remember, said something like, you know, we're in a crisis, we're in a surge, and there's, there are a lot of other patients who, who are waiting to get on ECMO. And I, I believe it was the patient's daughter who just flat out said, so are you telling me that you want to take the machine and give it to somebody else? And the doctor just sort of <laughs> took a moment. And in a way, that's kind of what the situation was right before she made the call. She was told she was trying to get this other patient on ECMO and she was told by the ECMO team, you, you have to you know, give one to get one, essentially. They need to free one up in order for a new patient to be put on ECMO. And that's a, a situation that I've heard over and over again. And it's not just with ECMO. It can be with critical care as well. I imagine that's a conversation they never prepare you for in medical school. And, and what really adds to the emotional difficulty of this is that in a lot of hospitals during COVID surges or you know, units that treat COVID patients that families aren't being allowed to visit. Whereas normally they might be there every day. They might be there for rounds, hearing the doctors and the nurses talk about what the reality is. But now in a surge, you can imagine that the doctors and nurses barely have time to make phone calls and they're mm -hmm. trying really hard to stay in touch with the family members. And it is harder to wrap your mind around the situation in a hospital with your relative or loved one when you can't actually be there. When we come back, what happens when hospitals have to stop stretching and start deciding who gets treated at all? This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. 
In Idaho, crisis standards of care have meant a high rate of transferring patients, a diminished amount of care, and long waits to see a doctor. But eventually, this is all supposed to look a little different. There are rules for how to withdraw care without the consent of patients if they fail to improve after a certain amount of time. These kinds of rules vary from state to state. Some come with an elaborate point system to help assign relative value to different types of people. Some of these systems incorporate patients' long-term chances of survival. Aside from being cringeworthy, using a point system like this is also relatively untested. Sherry Fink says a lot of times these plans haven't gone in front of the public for feedback. So doctors are understandably wary of putting the exact crisis standards into practice. I would say that I've really been stretching to find a place that is using these plans as written. Hmm. And I will also point out that there's always been a problem with these plans because there's not a lot of research that suggests that you will meet your goals by using these scoring systems. So the whole purpose of giving, you know, points, assessing points to patients and then choosing who gets the resource based on a scoring system. The whole goal is to maximize a certain outcome. And then the question becomes, well, what are you trying to maximize here? Is it the number of lives you save? Is it the number of years of life, i.e. should age come into it? Is it a number of healthy years of life? Do you look at whether that person has underlying conditions? Who's judging all of that? Exactly. Exactly, Mary. That's the other question. Who gets to make that choice? Who, who's on the triage team? Who drew up the plan? Often, as you could imagine, a group of people from a particular socioeconomic and educational background. It, this has been troubling to look at some of these plans and feel that, number one, they didn't have a lot of input. There wasn't a a huge public awareness of them. There wasn't even a lot of awareness amongst providers that states and hospitals were coming up with these plans. Now that they're in the public eye, now that they're being noticed and written about, there's been a pushback. And a number of especially disability rights organizations have filed complaints with the Office of Civil Rights at HHS, the, the federal health agency, to say that if you implement some of these plans as written, you will discriminate in, in ways that are unlawful. Some had these you know, aspects that sound very discriminatory, that may have nothing to do with maximizing survival. And there are people who would argue that it should be randomized, that there should be a lottery system, for example, because all of this has a danger of being very inequitable or reinforcing structural inequities in our health system. Who is it who has poor health at a baseline, if you incorporate that into your scoring system for deciding who gets a ventilator in a pandemic, are you reinforcing inequities? And we already have inequities and outcomes with this pandemic and different groups in this country that are dying at higher rates than others. So has this pandemic been like a moment where, because doctors have been forced to make decisions along the way, you feel like the public has started to understand more about what it values and what should be in these kinds of you know, documents that are trying to guide decision-making? I just think that the more light that's shined on these documents, more problems with them have been found. And the other big issue is that 
they're not necessarily so easy to implement. I think that's another reason that they're not necessarily being used as written. One of the hospitals where I, I said, you know, you're in like far into contingency care. They're stretching in every way possible. They're, they're distressed. Many of the patients are not getting the standard of care that the hospital usually provides. And I said, are you at least kind of having your triage team start to score people in case you decide you're going to flip into that other mode called crisis where you're literally rationing? And, and the individual who's in a leadership position at this hospital said to me, well, you know what? We're not doing that for two reasons. One is that the same people who we'd be asking to spend time on that, we need them to care for patients. And if we take them away, there's more chance that we'll need to ration. So, you know, it's time consuming, they said. And the second thing they said is, we're afraid that if we officially trigger that, that then people will sort of, rather than fight to find somewhere to transfer this patient, they'll just say, okay, now we're in this crisis mode. Um, we can just, you know, withdraw care and let them die. They don't want to go there. Sherry says, with better planning, a lot of these hospitals wouldn't even need to consider these standards. The United States has resources. They're just not distributed correctly. My biggest takeaway is we are not doing enough to use our resources across a system that could provide more and better care to more people. And I've seen it over and over again. And it's just, it would be shameful to not give resources to somebody when there is capacity in the healthcare system, but either because of differently owned entities or a lack of using the available technology that we now do have that could let us know, that could let, say, a public health official know where the resources are in real time, where patients could be moved. We're really not doing that to a great enough extent in this country, and that includes in Idaho. What would that look like if we did it? Would it look like patients in Idaho? I mean, patients in Idaho are already being transferred to Washington. Does it look like spreading that burden out further? Does it look like physicians relocating from a place like New York, which is doing okay right now, and you know, sort of having a more fluid workforce? What does it look like to you? Absolutely. Surging in providers from other places. There is some coordination going on and, and some you know, very wonderful steps that some hospitals are voluntarily taking patients from other places. But there are places in the world where there's a much more organized um, approach to this, where they're one step ahead and they're keeping track in real time and they're actually moving patients ahead of getting into crisis. And we can do that now with technology. And that's just not being done for various reasons in a lot of places. It requires so much coordination. I'm not saying it's not a good goal. I'm just saying we have a system where we have 50 individual states and often they're taught to think of themselves as little islands and have their own departments of health and communicate with their own you know, hospitals. And I don't know that there's even a system that you could flip on to do the kind of work that you're imagining. But we do it in things like hurricanes, for example. We do it where large numbers of patients have to be moved. There are coordination systems and there is a better way to coordinate. We don't have to deprive people of care. We have capacities in our health system. There's a lot more work to do on this. 
You seem weirdly optimistic where you recognize how awful of a position the healthcare workers are in, but you also see how they want to do a lot to make sure their patients make it. I, I'm not uh, I'm optimistic that maybe we'll come out of this with some lessons, but what makes me very um, disappointed, angry sometimes is that we're, what is it, 18, 19 months into this in this country and that we're still in this situation is just unconscionable. Why aren't we doing better? We could be. And it's, of course, the number one thing is why are we still having surges this bad when we have these incredible scientific tools, the, these vaccines, even treatments that can keep people out of uh, an ICU. Why aren't we doing better as a country? Um, that's number one. But number two is that this is the fourth surge for many places. So why is a surge still so devastating both to patients and to providers? So I, I would say I'm not optimistic because every time a surge has subsided and we've kind of felt like, okay, hopefully it's going to be all better now. We're not going to get into this situation again. Then there hasn't been a lot of, okay, well, what did we learn from it? And what can we implement just in case? Why are we talking about rationing at this point, this far into this? So no, I'm not optimistic. I feel that we're not, we haven't learned enough. We've had a chance to improve within the crisis. So what's to say we're actually gonna, you know, learn for next time. Sherry Fink, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Sherry Fink is a correspondent for The New York Times. And that's the show. One final thing before we head off. Do you have teenagers in your life? My colleague Lizzie O'Leary, the host of our Friday show, What Next TBD, she is hoping to hear from teens about their experiences on Instagram. For teenagers listening... How does Insta make you feel about yourself? Does what you see in your feed change the way you feel about your body, your friends, or anything else? Let us know. Leave us a voicemail with your parents' permission at 202-888-2588. We might use it in our Friday episode. What Next is produced by Daniel Hewitt, Elena Schwartz, Davis Land, Carmel Del Shad, and Mary Wilson. We're led by Allison Benedict and Alicia Montgomery. And I'm Mary Harris. Go find me on Twitter. I'm at Mary's desk. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live.